0: Good morning, friends. Thank you, Raji Bhai, for such kind words. I wish we could all, uh, we all carry a little bit of honey drop of the Lord inside us, and I wish we all would taste it and could be just a drop of a drop. That would be really a supreme felicity. To speak of Sri and his epic Savitri and his message is at once a delight and it is really a difficult task it is difficult because shribindu doesn't fit into any of the slots or categories while very often when people come see the pictures hear a music the first thing they ask is is it a cult or is it a new religion well the mother directly answers no it is not shribindu is neither a cult nor a religion and uh, well is it a new spiritual path very difficult to say that it's a new spiritual path either because it's so new, so new or perhaps the oldest of the old as we shall see because it connects to a seeking which is innate and inborn in humanity a seeking which runs through God knows millions and millions of years since man's first advent upon earth so it's very difficult to say that it is a new path it is a path that runs as humanity has become more and more conscious. It's unique to humans that we are born with this seeking. We are programmed in one of his famous um, beautiful luminous words in The Life Divine. Sri says, the animal is satisfied with a modicum of necessities. It's a sign of animality that it needs food, it needs to mate, it needs to sleep. And that's enough, just a little bit of covering. It's satisfied with the modicum of necessities. The gods are content with their splendors. They have light, they have wisdom, they have power. They live in joy, an inalienable joy. They are full of peace. Sometimes they quarrel, but very soon they harmonize, not like us. (laughs) So they are content with their splendors. But man is the most dissatisfied of all creatures. And this dissatisfaction is actually a divine gift to humanity. It it snatches from us peace and rest. We are constantly in search. And as we search and find, a new search begins. This is something unique to humanity, that even after we have all the questions, we still have, have all the answers, we still have a question left to be answered. That has been sort of um, on a little personal note, but a note which connects us to Sri Aurobindo. Something in my life, I had these nutty questions I think all of us have. Why this earth? Why this creation? Why am I born? And a lot of people I went to looking for these answers. Saints, sages, as we know, India is known for not only corrupt politicians, that of course is there, but also for these sages and saints who are just as if on the opposite pole. And whomever I met posed these questions, the standard answers were humanity suffers because of its karma. And it was like a shocking revelation to me that what karma? What have I done? What have people done? It was not just a personal question because in personal life we are all happy. But there is suffering in, in life. And why there is this suffering? because we have done something few generations or few births back, why should I suffer now? It would be so much better if right when we get a suffering, there is something like suddenly a bursting of a record inside and we know, okay, this is how it is. But we don't know. We don't know why we suffer. Sin, well, we do it in ignorance. Why call it sin? We are condemned to hell, to suffering, to misery, So the question was, why would there be a God who is at once so merciful and full of love and kindness? That's how we picturize God in all our scriptures, in all paths and traditions. And yet he would make us suffer. He would make us go through misery and pain so that we may worship him. Even a human being who would do that would not be worthy of any worship. So all these nutty questions. And the nuttiest of questions, why we are here? So the answers that were given to me, Where, well, we are here so that we can find God, and finding God, what happens next? We can have mukti, salvation, freedom from the cycle of births and deaths. So the natural question was, if such be the case, why we have been condemned to birth and death and rebirth? So the answer used to be that we are given this uh, birth and death so that we can eventually unite with God. Well... Why go through all this cycle if the end is the same as the beginning? We were there with him. So why all this drama and this drama full of pain, full of suffering, also full of joy, full of wonder, everything in creation, if the end of it has to be exactly the same as the beginning? So these were my questions and I sought the answers through various, various books, practically every possible Indian scriptures And every possible Western philosophy, and yet a question mark remained at the end of it. As I said, it didn't, uh, you know, seeking for personal salvation, mukti, nirvana was a very selfish goal to me. I felt, well, if this is the case, I don't want to be spiritually selfish, selfish in a spiritual way that I seek my mukti and the earth continues to be what it is. Now, in that, going through that phase, I took on to a, you know, agnosticism agnosticism is a kind of you know platform where you are neither here nor there Uh, I don't know whether there is really a God or not and if he is there what is he doing with us and at that point of time Sri came into my life and this background because you see it's so difficult to get at Sri because we want fixed categories whereas Sri defies you know we can't uh, there are people who are strong materialists, atheists, and they also find something in Shorabindu which is so beautiful, which is inspiring. There are those who are traditional Vedantists, and they find in Shorabindu something still greater following the path of Vedanta, something which has been missed out. There are those who are, uh, you know, taking the path in India, which is called as tantra, much misunderstood now, the path of the Shakti divine as goddess, divine as woman, the feminine divine. And they also find in Sri the supreme tantra of all because it's about the worship of the Divine Mother. There are those whose heart is open to God in whatever way, whichever form, it doesn't matter. They find the culmination and fulfillment of their bhakti, you know, in, in Sri and the Mother's words, in their persona, in whatever they bring to earth. So, it's so difficult. The moment we speak about Sherbindo, we run the risk of reducing him to something, diminishing him to a slot, to a system, to a category. But it's not exactly like that. Sherbindo connects with us to something which is very intimate in our own being. At the same time, he brings a vision which appears as if something from far off, something which is unheard of, something which Sometimes it is difficult to believe. At once so near and at once so far, I am reminded of one of the phrases or one of the um, slokas of the Shupnishad, which Shobindu considers as the foundation of the life divine upon earth. And it describes the divine and says, Tadejati, I'll just a uh, little bit because you know it, it's very beautiful in terms of rhythm. Tadejati, Tannayjati, Taddure, Tadduvantike, Tadan, Sarvasye Sarvasya, Asya, Bahiyat. So it says, Tadejati, Tannayjati, that which is Taddure, Tadduvantike, that which is within and that which is without. That which is near and that which is far. That which is in all things, at the same time all things are in that. So, in other words, there is nothing which is excluded out of that divine that we seek. This tendency of human mind to cut this life into two halves has led to what I call as a kind of spiritual hypocrisy. We are told by convincing voices, voices that travel across the globe and say, this world is Maya. So the problem is, if this world is Maya, then who is trying to speak to whom? And why go around and convince? And to whom? If it's anyways an illusion in which we are trapped. So, Shobindo Bing brings a refreshing new vision, a vision that reconciles earth and heaven. This is the seeking of man. In one of his small little poems, A Tree, he beautifully captures this vision. He says, A tree beside the sandy river beach, holding its topmost boughs to the skies. Like fingers to the heaven they cannot reach This is the soul of man His body and brain Hungry for earth His heavenly flight detained Simultaneously within us There is inbuilt a seeking for the beyond Man can never be content Simply being Within the frame of the earthly life And he finds so many ways So many outlets a Lot of drug Culture which came up Was he seeking for other dimensions Television, imagination, films, so many ways that human beings seek to go beyond the frame of earthly reference. We have been given that tool. But, of course, these are very imperfect ways, and these are ways which are dangerous ways, but there is a way to enter into the beyond. There is something beyond the earth, and man is attracted towards it. This is inbuilt in us. At the same time, we are drawn to earth, rooted onto earth. We can never, however much we may try, even a sannyasi who abandons everything and goes to the Himalayan cave with an address, you know, if you ask him what is his address, cave number 22, so and so, gully of Himalayas, and yet he carries earth with him. He is sitting atop earth nature. He is carrying his nature, which he cannot just leave. It's beautifully captured in one of the stories of Gautama the Buddha. That a disciple comes to him and says that um, you know he comes with some flowers in his hands and he says, I have come to give it. So Buddha says, Drop it. So he just drops it. (laughs) He his Buddha must be angry. He drops it. So he says, Drop it, I said. So he doesn't know what to drop, so he drops his hands. And the Buddha says a third time, I said, drop it. He says, Master, what shall I drop? Drop the ego. So difficult. We carry it wherever we go. It's human nature. We carry it wherever we go. So that is why in traditions, we have, in, in even great traditions, it has been said that this nature is like a trap. It's like an illusion. It traps the soul. And the only way, only way of doing something about it is to find a way by which we can come out of this magic circle of nature it traps you you may abandon everything there are beautiful stories swami vivekananda relates a story of king bhartahari he has left everything and he goes along the banks of a river and is meditating and one day towards the end of his earthly life he sees a you know a, a deer being chased by a tiger and as the tiger leaps upon the deer it's a she deer and she is carrying about to deliver a baby he pounces upon the she-deer and she delivers the baby and, you know, meanwhile the tiger picks up the, uh, the mother and goes away. Now this baby is born and King Bharathari um, he, uh, or rather uh, Bharat that time, he, he looks at the baby and he feels a lot of love for this baby. He brings up the baby and starts feeding this little deer fawn and it grows up. He gets so attached. That at the time of his departure from earth, he is worried. What will happen to this baby when I am gone? So years and years of sadhana, years and years of practice of penance and meditation and tapasya and detachment, eventually, just a small little occasion and he gets attached to earth. So is all this love, affection, tenderness that we have upon earth, is it a meaningless thing? Or is it in ignorance, trying to recreate something which we have lost? all human relationships of life is it simply an absurdity a kind of um, you know illusion in which we are trapped or is it the shadow of something real and unique which we seek and which we can create here if our mortal nature can change into the divine nature this is the first very first thing that shribindu brings that this imperfect ignorant nature well however difficult it may seem is also a mother, and she is preparing us for something uh, which is yet to come. This nature itself is evolving towards its own heights. It's creating forms, new and new forms, to embody higher and higher degrees of nature. And there he brings in this whole evolutionary hierarchy that, look, I mean, in matter also nature operates but it operates within very, very small limits. Only we have inertia and motion. That's the only two things that we have in nature, in, in material nature. And then this material nature begins to evolve into the bird, the beast, the plant. And then along with inertia and motion, we have something like a purposeful motion. The motion changes into a purposeful motion, expansion, reproduction in hunger, hunger, that is death, called in the Upanishads. And it begins to assume a different form, a different degree. The same nature in human being begins to come up with seeking, with thought, with intelligence, with affection, with tenderness, with care. But is this the end? So traditional approaches tell us that man is the peak of creation and so does science tell us that man is the ultimate in creation and the only difference between science and uh, spirituality spirituality says that man is a pedestal through which you can take a leap into the beyond so there is a purpose of humanity that humanity is like a you know uh, like a runway and uh, soul is like the aircraft so it has to use this runway and take off into the beyond and once it goes into the beyond it need not return back to earth well, it makes a nonsense of the whole process. So Sri Aurobindo says the very first thing, that this nature is still half developed and man is a transitional being. The purpose of humanness or our humanity is to prepare for the advent of something much greater than man, for a diviner nature, for a divine humanity. So humanity is like a scaffolding. And this scaffolding is to prepare for something still higher and greater which is yet to come, like whenever we make a new building, there is a scaffolding. The ego is a scaffolding to bring out the true individual within us. So this is makes sense at once of the entire journey, that we are not here, you know, it's, it's not just a meaningless absurdity, it's not just um, salvation and mukti, but there is a purpose why we are here on earth, and this purpose is essentially to change human nature into a divine nature. And this is a journey, not only of man, but the journey of earth. It is earth that climbs in the tree. It is earth that runs in the beast. It is earth that flies in the bird. It's earth that thinks in man. And it is earth that shall one day feel the touch of the divine in a new and diviner humanity. So he said, man is a transitional being, one of his very celebrated uh, phrases. And it is not to belittle humanity, it is to actually ennoble it. It is to celebrate it. Being human, we have we are all of us, it's not some people, some elect few. All of us are chosen to become that mold through which the divine seeks to express himself upon earth in the creation of a divine life upon earth. So this is Surbindo's vision in a very, very small nutshell. There are many other offshoots of this. So it would mean that the divine can express himself upon Earth in many-fold ways and manyfold activities. All activities of life, be it science, arts, economics, politics, administration, even well, what we call as battle, discoveries, inventions, human relations everything can change into a divine equivalent. all everything. Including all our relations. As I said, all human relations are nothing but a shadow, a reflection of divine. That's why uh, in the path of bhakti, we seek all human relations in the divine. So, you know, we seek the divine as father, as mother, uh, as friend, as playmate, as lover, as paramour, as master, as teacher. And there are paths where he also reveals himself as an enemy. And even he chooses to become the servant and slave of all because such is the beauty of the divine that he can become all these things simultaneously. But this is itself only a glimpse. Eventually all our relations on earthly life have to change into that divine equivalent which we are yet to capture upon earth. And if that can happen, this earthly life can change into a life divine. Not only Sri says that it can happen, he says it will happen. And after he had gone through all the traditional realizations and experiences of traditional yogas, the experience of nirvana, the experience of seeing the divine everywhere, literally in the jail in Alipur, he had the vision of Vasudeva in all things. And yet, there was something else. Normally after this, one would go out and spread the word. But Sri goes further into Pondicherry in a kind of uh, not exactly seclusion, but in a kind of divine experiment that is something else, something greater yet to come. And that vision, this vision of a life divine, this vision of a transformation of human nature into a divine nature, he, uh, and and the expression of divine in life in manifold ways, he captured through many, many works, Many many of his writings contain this vision, at the core of it, this central vision, and... It's manifestation in many ways. But the most celebrated of his works, what Sri himself considered as the most important work, where all this is captured not only in the form of a body of words, but as a power, as a consciousness which can uplift us, that vision, that work is Savitri. So Savitri is not a book, though it has taken the form of a book. Just as Sri is not just... uh, a figure drawn in time uh, with a name and a form. But the timeless who manifest in time. That's how I look upon Sri So Savitri is not just a book which one reads and uh, tries to understand. But Savitri is a power, a consciousness which illumines us. Literally the name Savitri means it's an illumining consciousness. Savitri is the light of the sun. And as we know light of the sun is not just light but also a power so is Savitri, a power and wisdom. What power and wisdom? A power and wisdom that is at once connects us to the beyond and to the earth. That's the link that Sri was looking for and he finds it in what he termed as the supramental consciousness, the consciousness of truth, which connects earth and the heaven in a beautiful, harmonious synthesis. And then he came up with that Very beautiful, what what Mother has spoken of Shurubindo. We have the message cards here which were given on 15th August. That Shurubindo, what he came to tell us is that one need not leave earth to find the divine. He is here. In life itself he is here. And if we do not find, it is because we have not taken the care to find him. So Savitri is the answer to this cosmic quest, this cosmic question. That is why people call it a cosmic poem. I was speaking about my quest, but it's a quest of all of us. Deep inside, we want to reconcile. Why am I here? And we have the answers. But if you really look close to these answers, we we are left wondering that is it really a complete possible answer? If we are really honest, of course, uh, habitually we accept whatever you know, religion or tradition we are born in. I am born in a Hindu tradition. Some are born in different traditions. And of course... Like every other parent, my parent also wanted to imprint that. No, no, no. You don't have to. These questions you uh, are nutty questions. It's all your karma. So when I would question them about karma, they would not be very happy about it because it would be almost like blasphemy questioning whatever religion has said. But then maybe I used to ask them that maybe we have misunderstood. It's not that the religion say this. Maybe the divine being who came said something else. Maybe we have misunderstood. So this seeking going beyond what we all these answers that we have found shubindo brings that to earth and that he has captured in savitri it's an answer to these questions why we are here is there really a divine what is this divine how does he connect to earth what is he doing in us is it does he really listen to us are we do we have to follow a particular cult, a particular path, a particular religion to be really redeemed? Or is he everywhere in all things? And what is he doing? When does he actually... Um, when does the divine consciousness work actively in us? It is when. Is it when we are sitting cross-legged, bolt-straight in a certain form of meditation, uh, heaving our chest in a breathing? Or is he active even when we cry... Even when we revolt, even when we have turned away from him. So, this beautiful vision is captured in Savitri. And without, you know, with this little background, I would like to dip into some pages. You know, in India, we have this teaching of the Vedanta that the divine uh, consciousness, of course, the Vedanta uses a different word altogether the one, the unique, the soul, the real, the absolute. Also, the word unknowable, unknowable to the mind, not to the inner consciousness. He is there behind creation. Now, Survindo brings in what I call as a dynamic Vedanta. He is not only behind creation, as the seed, root, and cause and origin of all things. He is not only at the end of the journey, as the goal of all things, but is here in our midst, right. Even when we are, even when we sin, even when we, sor- we are full of sorrow and suffering, he is here. And that he is here not with just some select few humanity. He is here, there, everywhere with all beings. And this in um, in one of the cantos, as we know, Savitri is a huge, huge poem with uh, what can be called as 12 chapters, 12 main chapters. 11 books and an epilogue. And each of them has many cantos. So This is from Book 1, Canto 4, the secret knowledge. He calls it the secret knowledge. It's a knowledge which is not accessible to the mind and the senses. But it's a knowledge which is accessible to an inner consciousness. We can discover it. It's not secret that's forever meant to be secret. But because all the time we are living in a separative consciousness, we don't have this knowledge. We don't see God. And this is another question. That everybody says the only real thing is God. So the question is, why don't we experience him as naturally as I experience the skin of my hand? Why should that which alone is real be the most inaccessible? And this also tells us the logic of transformation. Transformation would mean literally that right now we have to do so much labor to get just a glimpse or touch of the divine consciousness. And most often, as in religions, we have to just accept him as a belief system. That there is something like God. You can't find him or unite with him. Yoga takes us one step further. Yes, you can find and unite with him. It goes beyond religions. But even in yoga, the path is so long, so tortuous, so full of haze and maze, so full of difficulties and snares. Why can't it be natural and normal? Well, it's not natural and normal because our normal nature does not support the expression and manifestation of God. So only when this nature is changed into a divine nature, then the very fact we are born on earth, we take that nature and we would breathe that divine consciousness. We would breathe that divine existence. Perhaps we already see this happening. The kind of children that are coming today, it seems that they are either Vedantists of old or they are born with some kind of a vision which we didn't have. So here is... uh, From secret knowledge, just a few lines, alive in a dead rotating universe, we whirl not here upon a casual globe, abandoned to a task beyond our force. We are not alone. We are given this work. Mankind is a catalyst to become something else, but there is a hand which is always there with us, Whatever be the difficulty, we always have the strength which is equal to match that difficulty. It's not because of some bad karmas that we suffer, but because we suffer because we have carry within us a capacity not only to overcome that suffering, but to grow strong with the storm and the hail and the gale. There is something in man that grows stronger and sweeter and mightier and wiser through all this even through the tangled anarchy called fate what a beautiful word tangled anarchy we can't make sense of it what is this fate it's really such a strange thing, it doesn't make logical sense, we try to bring logic human logic into divine works one must have done a mistake therefore one is suffering as if God is a CEO of a company With a carrot and a rod. Because this is how we think. Somebody has done a mistake, I must punish him. So God also must be like that. In one hand he has a carrot, maybe a little more lucrative carrot, heavenly carrot. A lot more tastier. And this rod. So you have done mistake, punish. This is humanizing God. Whereas God tries to divinize human beings. But we are so quick to humanize God. So he uses the word tangled anarchy. So difficult to understand the ways of fate. I mean, we believe that good men always have good things in life and bad people suffer. But if we just look around, we will find that it's not really true. I mean, one has to be totally blind to the facts of creation to believe it. Suffering and joy is there with everyone. And it's not that some people are targeted... And they are bad people, and the good people always get many good things. Even in Indian scriptures, it's not so. Uh, the Pandavas suffered so much. And through the bitterness of death and fall, an outstretched hand is felt upon our lives. Even when we fall, where do we fall? This is a very beautiful poem of Sherbindu, and the name of this poem is. On her birthday to R, It's a very interesting poem. And in that poem he, he writes. Even those who fall. In the tempest and the storm. Where do they fall? Into his breast. He who to some gives victory, joy and good. To some gives rest. Look at the vision. At once on the heights and the peaks. At once in the Bosom of disaster, in darkness and the abyss, there too he is there. One who has shaped this world is ever its Lord. So whenever we raise these questions, is really God out there? Is he in this world? Shraimdha says not only he is there, he is its Lord. Then what is he doing? Our errors are his steps upon the way. What a liberating one single phrase from Savitri. Our errors. He's not looking at errors and, you know, like a supercomputer punching holes. Look, you made a mistake. You made a mistake. The beautiful English film I had seen, Miracle on the 34th Miller Street, which is about this, that, you know, we are so much obsessed and preoccupied. But what really is error? It is... The divine moving on his way. Through every so-called error, we improve by one notch further. And that's the inner significance of death and rebirth. After all, what happens at death? The form gets broken. But the experience of a lifetime remains. Often people ask this question. It's very simple to understand it. It's like when an engineer builds a bridge. Now if the bridge is not good, after a while it's broken. So, what is lost? The bridge is lost. Is the knowledge lost? No. In fact, a greater understanding has come. What went wrong? So, next time he builds the bridge, he makes it better. That's how all evolution, scientific or otherwise, takes place. Nature itself creates many, many seeming errors to build a new species. We read about Archaeop- Archaeopteryx and Dougbill Platypus. And it seems strange that how could nature create, create such a weird creature? When we study the evolutionary biology and how you know dolphins came into being, how they communicate, then we see there are several intermediate species and each species, one particular activity of the dolphin was being perfected. And suddenly those intermediary species are wiped away and the essence is gathered by nature and a new species is created. So, our errors, what appears as mistakes, are His steps on the way. He works through the fears, vicissitudes of our lives. He is not only active when we go to a temple or a church or a gurudwara or a mosque. No, probably God is asleep there. You know, I read a very nice story about someone who goes and goes to a church and You know, he's suddenly told that, look, from next time onwards, you have to go to another church. So he's feeling very bad about it. He says, I have been there from the inception to build this beautiful place, temple of my Lord. And suddenly I am asked to go away and Christ appears before him in a vision. This story would apply to anyone, to Krishna as much. And he says, why are you unhappy, my child? He says, you know, I've been asked to go away from the church to somewhere else from the next day. He says, don't worry. I've been asked to leave five years back. You have to leave tomorrow. And it equally applies to all the temples, all the mosques and gurudwaras. God seems to have run away. And he is found because (laughs) the best place is the human heart. He is there in every, embedded in every grain of sand. As, you know, William Blake has said, When we can hold eternity, find eternity in a grain of sand, then we have the vision of the divine. The mother says in one of her prayers, each grain of sand is an occasion for your worship. So unfortunately, we had shut him into walls and put on locks of cults and creeds. So God has become, you know, he gets claustrophobic and he wants to run away. So he's active even in the fierce vicissitudes of a life, ups and downs. When we cry miserably and say, there is no God. He is most near us. Oh, you called me? Yes, I called you to say that there is no you. Nevertheless, you called me. So, he says, he works through the fierce vicissitudes of our lives. He works through the hard breath of battle and toil. At one place, Shurabindu says, men die so that man may live and God be born. When we look at Many, many centuries, millenniums, battle and surprise, the preoccupations of mankind, the gladiators, the human sacrifice. But at the end of the journey, slowly the humanization of an half-animal consciousness. Men die so that man may live and God be born. He works through our sins and sorrows and our tears. So this is not a government in absentia. Very, very active. I was very happy to hear other day Rajiv Bhai was telling that it's so nice that the Prime Minister here can be walking like a commoner on the road and you can just say hello and greet him. It's something so wonderful because in India we don't find that. We find z securities and covers like all the gods, you know, you can't approach them, unapproachable. But it's so good. So the divine walks among us like a commoner. And he clothes, perhaps that's the meaning of the Bible, that the meek and the weak shall inherit the earth. He walks among those who are humble. So here he says he works through our sins and sorrows and our tears. His knowledge overrules our nasceans. We don't know. We are ignorant. Fine. But he knows. It's a nice little story I heard one day. And that's why, you know, uh, very often when we teach our children to pray, Actually, we don't teach how to pray. We take away the real prayer. Because, you know, we always have standard prayers. And standard prayers take away the most important ingredient of the prayer. And that is the feeling from inside. So there was a man who went all the way and uh, he suddenly forgot his prayer book and he remembered I have to pray. So he said, Lord, I have forgotten my prayer book and I don't remember them by heart. But I'll do one thing. From A to Z, ABCD, he said five times. He says, you know all the prayers and you know my need. Please make the best prayer for me. You know, we can form that relation with God. There is a very touching little story of the ashram, in the ashram context of Amrita. He was um, a South Indian Brahmin. At 14 years, he had a vision of Shurubindo and recognized in him the avatar. He had a wonderful vision. Tamil Brahmin. And he used to have a choti and Sri Aurobindo had a wonderful sense of humor. So one of the one day he tells, Sri Aurobindo asked one of the disciples, cut away his choti. So that disciple did a very surgical operation while Amrita was sleeping. He cut it away in such a way that he, he could not, uh, you know, he, he did not even wake up. And in the morning he felt, oh my God, my choti is gone. What will my parents think of me? And thanks to that surgical operation that was done overnight at the command of Sri that um, Amrita was saved in marriage, because after two days his father landed at the doorsteps and he said, well, I have seen a girl for you, but the moment he saw a Tamil Brahmin without a choti, he said, what will the girl's parents think? You have completely ruined the religion, etc., etc., and eventually he left him. But in the process, Amrita found his refuge, so that Amrita, once the mother appears before him in, on his body and says, Amrita, ask whatever you want to. He, he's quiet, he doesn't know. So then he, he says, Amrita, you ask, you want liberation? I can give you liberation. He's silent. You want Brahman consciousness? I can give you Brahman consciousness. You want anything? It's your birthday, you can ask a gift of earth or a boon from the heavens. Amrita is quiet. So everybody says, Amrita, this is a golden opportunity. So after much thought, Amrita says, Mother, I want two banyans. I want two banyans. So the mother laughs and says, he is very wise. So people are wondering what is so wise about it. (laughs) She was going to give all this. So Amrita says, well, I know one thing that she is playing with us. She knows all my needs and she will give me whatever is necessary whenever I am ready for it. So then why did you ask for two banyans? Well, I have to keep her word. She is asking me so many times. So I must not, you know. She is telling me to ask. It's a command. So what do I ask? Okay, I have some material little need that I need to banyan. So I told her. So you see, he is all the time. His knowledge overrules our nescience. Very often when people take to yoga... They ask, what is the way, what is the path, what is the method? First thing they want to know is, what is the practical way to find this? Well, the moment we speak about a method and a practice, we have lost half of it. How beautiful to think that all that we do, all our ways, in every which way He is there, we have to just be open and receptive. That's all that is needed. So simple. And so difficult. Because human mind cannot understand it. It understands difficult breathing exercises. It understands deep concentration. It understands how the Kundalini awakens and pierces through the centers. It understands Mantra Japa, one lakh times right a mantra. But to tell it something so simple, how can that be? How can God be present everywhere? How can we carry him to the bathroom? But this is what the mother told to Udar, one of her disciples, Udar Pinto. After 20 years of sadhana, so to say, he asked the mother, Mother, what do you feel about my progress? Mother says, well, you are doing good, but you could have done much better. What do you mean, mother? Which way? Mother asked him, what do you do when you wake up? Well, I rush to the bathroom. What do you do in the bathroom? Mother, I brush my teeth. How do you brush your teeth? Now he is a bit embarrassed. He thought mother is going to (laughs) find all his, you know, that he is not doing it well. So he says, mother, this way, that way. He says, all wrong. Mother, what is the best way to brush the teeth? He says, no, no, all wrong right from the morning you wake up. He says, mother, what am I supposed to do then? When you wake up, you think that I am with you. When you walk to the bathroom, I come with you. When you brush your teeth, I brush with you. Can you do this? He says, yes, mother, it's so simple, I have to do this. He says, try. To another disciple, she gave a very interesting command. The disciple asked, what shall I do for you? Dara, Dara was a Muslim from uh, Hyderabad family. And very interesting, his name was something else, Sheikh Hyder. And when he came, mother called him Dara. So he says, mother, my name is not Dara. He says, I know, but you are Dara. Dara, the brother of Aurangzeb in those times. And he said, Mother, what work shall I do? She said, be, be happy. So after three days he came and said, Mother, this is very difficult. Give me some other work. Being happy is very difficult. And what we don't realize that when we are happy, simply happy, we are doing a work for the Lord. We are reducing His burden so much. So all the time, His knowledge overrules our nascience. It doesn't matter whether we know it or don't know it. There is a very nice line in Ramayana, I can't resist quoting and uh, yesterday Rajiv bhai was just mentioning it. Ulta naam japa jag Balmiki bhai brahmasamana. Balmiki was a robber in in his life. Ratnakar. And One day while robbing he happened to rob a saint. Now when you rob a saint obviously you have to get something in return. When you rob an ordinary mortal you get the police and the jail. But when you rob a saint you get compassion and wisdom. So he robs a saint. And the saint through a series of dialogues, eventually he has a conversion inside. So he says, okay, what shall I do to find this great reality that you speak about? He says, nothing. Take the name of Ram. Take the name of Lord. He says, what name? I don't know any name. He says, okay, you take Ram. Rama is one of the names, many names of the Lord. So he says, but I can't, naturally I am used to say Mara. He says, okay, you use Mara Mara thinking it's the name of the Lord. So he says, Mara 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 Mara. So Mara Mara becomes Ram, Ram over a period of time. Now, the point is, it's not so much that we don't know how to find the divine. He knows how to find us. And if we are seated here, it's because he wants us to be here. And if we can live with this attitude, that his knowledge, look at how one single line of Sri People often say, what is their practical in Savitri? Every line is practical. His knowledge overrules our nescience. We are ignorant. But if we can live with this faith that he knows... So what shall we do about life? What philosophy? We try to understand. He says, whatever the appearance, we must bear. Whatever our strong ills and present fate, when nothing we can see but drift and bail, a mighty guidance leads us still through all. Even a reed floating on the ocean, drifting, God knows where, is yet being guided. This is, I call as Shorabindu's Vedanta, that in all circumstances, we are never abandoned, we are never alone. We are being guided and led by a wisdom, which in the Upanishad is, the term is Pragya Prastho Purano. It is a wisdom of old that has gone into creation. Creation is not a random act. It's not an accident. It's not some maya which came and covered the Lord. It's not the act of a devil or some dark entity called Shaitan or, you know, whatever it is. It is not a Satan which has created this world or possessed it. There is a wisdom which operates. And we may not understand it because we have a limited human mind and that is infinite. So what we need to do is trust that wisdom that it is carrying us. Carrying us towards a perfection which is ingrained in us just like a computer chip or like a seed, like a seed within a tree. It is implanted. And because this Seed of perfection of the divine is inbuilt within us Therefore it is bound to one day grow into Its fullness of divinity And what is the sign we may ask That this seed is hidden within us Well a very simple sign Everyday sign We seek perfection outside In everything except within us We seek it Lot of unhappiness of human life Is simply because we want others to be perfect Perfect That's why I always say, India is truly a divinely chosen country. You just can't find perfection outside. You have no choice but to turn inside for the perfection. You look for it and you don't find it. The traffic is random, the law doesn't work, nothing seems to operate. So you are forced, compelled almost, to look inside and discover that perfection. But that perfection is inside us. And... If we have to find it outside, we must first discover it inside. And it is inbuilt. We are programmed. How much ever we may talk of otherworldliness, innately human beings want perfection upon earth. It's because we don't find it, we tend to turn to the beyond. But if it was natural and normal, if we could breathe the divine consciousness, if we could see the divine as the yogin sees, if we could experience in every contact the touch of the divine, why would we want to ever leave this? In fact, we would feel this is it. It is here. It is here. Like the great Vedas. Iti, iti. Not neti, neti. Not this, not this. No. It is here. He is here. And this what is another truth that Sri Aurobindo reveals in his beautiful song, Savitri. This is another passage. This is uh, very, very tempting and um, I just lose track of time, but maybe after this passage we will take a break or have question-answers. I leave it completely open to everyone. Mm. The master of existence lurks in us. Where is he found? Which is his temple? Here, in us. The master of existence. Look at just this thought, if we can live with this one thought. It's a beautiful uh, meditation which Sri gives us. It's there from the Upanishads, from the Isha Upanishad, but his own unique way. He says, lift your eyes towards the sun. Look at that splendor burning in the skies. Orion, shining with his belt far away in the southern sky. Look at them. What is that light which shines in all this? And he says... It is the light of the one. And then he brings us closer and closer. He is not only that far. He is here, near us. He is there in the laughter of the boy. He is there in the blush of a girl. He is there in the blossoming of a flower and a plant. And then he says, no, he is still near. He is within us. And then he ends it very beautifully saying, Remember, be not a trembler and a doubter. Remember that in your own body dwells the one who creates and destroys millions of universes with a breath We carry him in us or he carries us whichever way we want to look at it How beautiful this thought is to live by that the master of existence lurks in us Not only in us means in me, but in everything in creation Everything is an occasion for worship for celebrating So, what is he doing? He plays at hide and seek with his own force. Nature, he is playing with nature. Hide and seek. Now we find him, now we lose him. In nature's instrument, loiters, secret God. In speech, in thought, in word, in feeling, in will, impulsion, in our very breath, loiters. Look at the expression. Loiters. Somebody seemingly aimlessly looking for an avenue and opportunity to plunge inside but we don't allow him that passage why? because we have concepts oh God is far away God is in a temple, God is in Pondicherry God is in a picture, God is here there, so poor fellow has no no option but we tie him with our concepts, so but he is there what is speech meant for? for convincing people, for deceiving others for abusing, what we use this instrument for But if we allow this instrument to become perfected, to be moved by the divine breath, what is heart meant for? To love everyone else except God. Some little time we can give to him. Five minutes is fine. So here also he can express. All our heart can be filled with that sweetness, that love, that delight, which is our inheritance, our will, weak, full of desire, wanting to grab this or that, but within this will, behind it, is the omnipotent will. And anything that we need will come to it. That is what the great Isha says. Bhunjita enjoy this world. What is celebration? bhunjita. How? By renouncing. How can we enjoy by renouncing? Because, Isha vasyam Midam Sarvam yat Kinca Jagatyam Jagat. The Lord dwells in all. All is for the Lord. You are a portion of the Lord. Whatever you need will come and whatever you don't need will go away. But with our limited ego, we try to understand his play. That becomes a problem. The imminent lives in man as in his house. Only we keep shutting him in a cupboard. But he lives in man as in his house. He has made the universe his pastimes field. What is this universe? A vast gymnasium of his works of might. The sun, the stars, the celestial bodies, this whole universe is his play field. We can play with him when we play with the stars, when we play with the moon. All knowing, he accepts our darkened state. Divine wears shapes of animal or man. Eternal, he ascends to fate and time, immortal, dallies with mortality. So, why does he do this? Why does he accept this darkened state? It's not that divine is elsewhere and darkness is elsewhere. We have this famous um, thing in one of the ancient Indian scriptures, the, one of the Puranas, that he parted the day from the night, the light from the dark. But it's not the divine who parted. Life parted it. As far as the divine, he plunges into the darkness, hides inside the darkness. Why does he do it? Beautifully he says, One, the absolute, the perfect, the immune. One who is in us as our secret self. Our mask of imperfection has assumed. Who has assumed this imperfection? It is the perfect one. He has assumed this imperfection. What for? He has made this tenement of flesh his own. He has accepted this fallen state. His image in the human measure cast. We have certain concepts and percepts about the divine. And very often we see the divine will reduce himself to justify our percepts and concepts. But actually, he lowers down many notches below. That's why religions, even paths, cults, cannot really find him in its absolute infinity. Because our human thought limits him. He is beyond. There is a very interesting little experience of the mother recorded in the agenda, where she sees through windows many paths, each window a path, and each master comes and shows her a path. And she says, yeah, but small and narrow. Like that, she, many, many paths are shown to her. Then she sees that there is a man sitting in a purple robe. And he says, come, why don't you try my dish? It's an occult vision. She goes and tries a dish. She says, wow, it's very tasty. What is your path? He says, I have no path. How beautiful this is. I walk on the vastness of the infinite. So divine reduces himself to the human stature only because it's a concession. He fits into our little coat that we have made for him, into a little dress. But at the first opportunity, he breaks free. And the coat falls away and the scales from our eyes. And we begin to breathe and see and live that infinity. So he consents. So his image in the human measure cast. It's not that he's this, but he reduces himself. Whatever form we believe, whatever cult, practice. So he says, okay, so in every cult we will see that there are certain practices. And everybody says, oh, by doing this I gain this. Of course you will. It's not because that is the way or the only way. Because divine had to consent to our limitation. I believe that by this breathing I will find him. So he says, okay, do this breathing. I believe that by this japa I will find him. So he says, fine, I'll come to you by your japa. I believe that by this mantra, by this Homa, by this Yagna, I will find him. So he says, okay, light a fire and do all this, I will come to you. I believe that in this religion only I can find him. He says, fine, I'll wear the mask of that religion and come to you. But if I believe that he is there, here, everywhere, infinite, eternal, absolute, alone, unthinkable, supreme, who is in us, in me, in her, in him, in creation, everywhere, in a grain of sand. So at each moment, he will reveal himself to us. We don't have to sit specially for a particular practice. But he reduces himself. Why does he do it? That to his divine measure we might rise. Now, every time, you know, we start life with a concept. And this connects us to the whole journey and story of man. Savitri is the story of creation. At different ages of mankind, we had a different concept of God. In every age, there are, there is a stage of humanity, Egypt, India, everywhere, where one believed God to be more or less like an animal. Even animal forms were there. Then one ascends further. First, there is a God of justice. Then comes the God of love and kindness and mercy, because kindness and mercy are definitely higher than justice. Then comes a still greater God. Our whole thing evolves we evolve and as we evolve our concept of God evolves our life evolves every part in us evolves this is also beautifully captured Just, I flipped through a page to page 632 this whole evolutionary journey and how our understanding our percepts and concepts evolve all our life starts from the mud few lines above uh, maybe I should read All our earth starts from mud and ends in the sky. And love that was once an animal's desire. Then a sweet madness in the rapturous heart. An ardent comradeship in the happy mind becomes a wide spiritual yearning space. A lonely soul passions for the alone. The heart that loved man thrills to the love of God. So it's an evolution of love. So similarly, we conceive God in certain ways. And slowly as we evolve, God also seemingly evolves with us, or rather our concept of God evolves with us. So we are in an age when we have to discover God in his utter vastness. This is the demand of the age. So slowly, he is changing us. So first he becomes like us, like a father who has to train a child um, you know, this uh, how the divine trains humanity is a lesson for fathers and mothers. Parents become very impatient with children, and it spoils the play. But look how divine deals with us. He even consents to become like us. So when fathers have to train their children to become strong, they will say, "Come, let's have a little wrestling match." And initially the father loses, says, "Oh, you won." So the baby thinks he has really won. But what has happened? The father has assumed all his strength he has kept behind. Chooses to fall. Again, little bit. Then slowly the father increases his strength. And as the child's strength grows, the father also matches his strength. So this is the process of evolution. This is the way the divine deals. Slowly, slowly, he raises up one notch earlier. But we want to remain in our comfort zones. That to his divine measure we might rise, till he ultimately takes us to the utter oneness of God. There is a story of Meera the saint, when she is thrown out of you know her kingdom. She is carrying an idol of Krishna. She loves Krishna, as we know. And the first night that she sleeps outside the kingdom, the palace, the first thing that happens is that that idol is stolen away. Obviously it was a gold idol and the person who stole did not steal it because of its divine value but because of its material value. So in the morning she is very distressed. She says, I didn't want anything from you. I didn't want this palace, this husband, all these riches, comforts. Why I just loved you? Why did you take away that from me which I love? So she hears a voice. Whom did you love? Of course, I loved Krishna, you. Oh, and who is this Krishna you loved? Well, I was carrying him with me all through. Where, where? Show me. Oh, you have taken it away. Is that the Krishna you loved? You don't know Krishna. And then Krishna reveals who he is in all his splendor. So He says that step by step, we are lifted to utter understanding. We may start with an idol. We graduate, we start in a temple. Temple and idols are nursery ground. It's good to start with. Then we have concepts. Concepts and percepts are also secondary school. They are necessary for human beings to grow. And then, eventually, he takes away all these scaffoldings. His step and all his sky and God. So he says, then... In a figure of divinity, the maker shall recast us and impose a plan of Godhead on the mortal's mold. There is a plan working within us. There is an agenda with which we are born. We don't understand. We go to God with our agenda. Everybody has in his pocket 20 points or 10 points or at least 2. So when any divine being, saintly being or an image, we go, we take out, Lord, this is what I want from you. Good, no problem. He says, you want this? Fine. Take it. When he loves us less, he gives us. When he starts loving us little more, he takes away what he has given. There is a line in Savitri. Heaven's wiser love rejects the mortal's prayer. And then a time comes when we say we have been wanting and he has been giving. (laughs) Let me ask him. Probably he is wise enough to know what I really need. So we go and tell him, okay, all these years I have been wanting from you and you have been giving. Tell me, what do you want? So he says, I want you to become like me. Oh my God, that was your agenda. So I wasted all my time strengthening my humanity. Very often people believe it's a sign of a divine presence if our desires are fulfilled. So people go to such places. In India, they are called as mannat magna. There are places where people will go and if their wishes are fulfilled, they say divine is here. But perhaps the divine is more there where our wishes are not fulfilled. Because every desire fulfilled is a bar between us and the delight. Because we have put that bar. If I get it, I will be happy. But he wants us to experience that with nothing you can be happy. My presence itself is enough because I breathe delight. The story of someone going to a Psychiatric hospital and says sees a man is on uh, on the bed and crying out, Lulu, Lulu, how much I miss you, Lulu. He says, What's gone wrong with him? He says he's depressed. Why? Because he loved Lulu and couldn't marry her. Oh, it happens. Goes to another bed. Another man is saying, Lulu, oh my Lulu. So what happened to him? He says he loved Lulu and married her, so he is depressed. So a few beds further there is a third one lulu lulu he says this lulu seems to be strange she has made so many people unhappy he says no no this man has actually nothing to do with lulu but why is he depressed taking the name of lulu he says he watching both of them take the name of lulu and he he thinks that lulu is very very desirable and he doesn't even know who lulu is so he's unhappy about it you know this is our state we think by getting this i'll be happy And for a long time, the divine says, so be it. But a time comes when he says, learn to say, let thy will be done. And what is thy will? To create divinity out of the human mold. So he says he will impose, look at these words, a plan of Godhead on the mortal's mold. There is a plan of Godhead. Lifting our finite minds to his infinite. Our finite minds locked in concepts. And we hold dearly to them. We just are not willing to shed off these scales. And everybody finds his comfort zone. But he wants to lift us to infinite. Touching the moment with eternity. Look at how beautiful. Every moment of life can be a celebration, an occasion for his touch. Touching the moments with his eternity. This transfiguration is earth's due to heaven. He says it's a destiny bequeathed to earth. A mutual debt binds man to the supreme. Imagine, we are not only debtors, God owes something to us. What is that something he owes? By the very fact that the human soul has plunged itself into this darkness and chosen to wear the human mold. He says, well, I owe it because you have chosen and consented. To take this mold which I want to transform. So this is a mutual debt. His nature we must put on as he put ours. The divine wears human nature. Comes here like an ordinary mortal. So that an ordinary mortal by that example and that presence can arrive at his immortality. His nature we must put on as he put ours. We are sons of God and must be even as he. This is the reason why in ancient, uh, certain Indian traditions, not ancient, it's more modern actually. Ancient traditions didn't follow a tradition. (laughs) They were very untraditional, very modern. But uh, when it turns into a tradition, as we find uh, has happened in India, everything has turned into a tradition. The Vedas, the Upanishads, they were free-seeking of a free soul for the infinite. Now they have turned into limited traditions. So, when a man takes to spiritual path, he is has a prefix Swami and a suffix Ananda. So, you know, it becomes Swami and Ananda. Now, Actually, it's very funny because uh, he's, most of the Swamis are far from being Swami. Swami literally means mastery over nature. But most of them are utter slaves. Just by putting a prefix, we don't become Swami. And Ananda means, well what is my surname? I wish one day they allow it on the visa forms and everywhere, no, when we land. What is the surname? Everybody writes Ananda. Surname is delight. Why? Because his name is delight. Raso Vesaha. All of us are children of delight. This reminder. So it's a reminder. Swami so and so Ananda. So Ananda is his surname. Nothing else. So here he says, we are sons of God. What is God's surname? Ananda. Delight, how beautiful this is, and must be even as he, his human portion, we must grow divine. Our life is a paradox with God for key. Our life is a paradox and this is something we all know and understand. But all our concepts and answers are not able to resolve this paradox. But if we find that utter infinity of God, then this paradox gets resolved. Then we see the whole evolutionary journey from dust to man and beyond. And in all this journey, there is only one constant factor, and that is God. So this is uh, just a little bit of glimpse. Savitri is infinite and Sri is infinite. There is no end to it. But uh, spontaneously whatever has come, I have just shared, there is no format, there is no plan in my mind that this must be told and talked, no point by point elucidation, but we can have a small break and then we can have questions and answers which can be a little more structured, any aspect or any dimension of life, creation, of course in the light of Mother and We will take a small break.